the builders, the Doylem who created movements and shaped our world. Presented by Gedalia Gutenberg and Rabbi Ephraim Zalman Galinsky. Welcome back, listeners, wherever in the world and in your week this edition of The Builders finds you. And welcome back to you, Rabbi Ephraim Zalman Galinsky. And to you, Rabbi Dahlia, it's a pleasure being with you again. I think it's been far, far too long. I think we can all agree on that. And we're here to tell the story of Chazon Ish, Rav Ramishai Karelitz, and his role as a builder of the vast Torah world we see today. Rabbi Ephraim, should we share the secret of why exactly it's been so long since the last episode? It's a secret to me as well, so I'd like to hear that. Well, actually, let me just remind you that it's actually the second time uh, that we're doing this episode. A month ago, uh, we sat down to record about the Chazon Ish, and I felt at the end or some days afterwards, listening to it, that we had not done justice by a long mile to the greatness of the Chazonish. So it's in honor of the Chazonish, we're going to have a two-part episode for the second time. And that is the explanation of why this has been so long over here. As they say, no pressure, but indeed the pressure is on to get it right this time. So here's a little roadmap to what we're going to be discussing over here. The Chazonish's life divides into two very neat parts. He was born in 1878, was Nifta in 1953. And for the first 55 years of his life, he lived in Eastern Europe, many of the years in Vilna. During those years, he was very, very little known. And we're going to be discussing those years in part one. This is when the years when he's growing, when he's becoming a Balhalochum. We have to be precise in, in our warning. He wasn't well-known to the general public. There was a certain circle of Talmud HaChamim in Vilna who truly knew who the Chazanish was. There's no doubt about that. He wasn't known to the general public. I think that's the more precise way of putting it. Okay, I stand corrected. He wasn't known to the wider public, although there's many people who would have seen this for him, Chazanish, and they wouldn't have known who it is and uh, on that more later. That's the first episode. The second episode is for the last 20 years of his life. It's almost like Gedali Yisrael, I think we've mentioned this before, have an incredibly long incubation period. And it's only in the last 20 years of his life, suddenly in the post-Holocaust world of the early days of the State of Israel, there he developed an enormous, enormous public force. And that's going to be those years, uh, the last 20 years of his life, 1933 to 1953, are the subject of the second episode. So we've been, I've been very yekish this time around, which is just giving a roadmap and just saying where this is going. So without further ado, I think we're going to jump. I'm going to befriend you in the hot seat, okay? The hot seat is both because I think you don't have an air conditioning vent over you and you're drinking a hot drink. And it's because I'm about to put you on the spot by asking for definitions. If this is the first time, if shockingly you have not listened to the previous episodes, we always ask the following question, which is, what is the given, uh, in this case, the Chazonish, what did this Godel bring to the table and where is fingerprints recognizable in the Torah and the vast Torah and from world that we have today? Give me a definition of what the Chazonish was as a builder. It's very, very difficult to try to uh, define like one certain area that the Chazunish was uh, influenced uh, Haredi from Jewry. Nevertheless. Because it was like all across the board. It was in Halacha, in Hashkafa, in Musar, or anti-Musar, if you want to you call right. that. I'm going to attempt to give voice to what you're saying in the following way. Tell me if you agree with this. 
I think that the most urgent questions that has faced the Jewish people in modern times, post-war times, but it's probably fair to say that for hundreds and hundreds of years before, possibly thousands of years, has been the creation of the modern state of Israel, right? Uh, it, it raised a host of issues, halachic issues, but hashkafic issues. It was so unprecedented, right? Literally the revival of a national polity that hadn't been for 2,000 years. And it raised existential questions regarding the survival of here in Israel, survival and rebuilding of the Jewish people post-Holocaust times. And into that incredibly, this cauldron of competing factions and there were emotions and different movements, the Chazon Ish came and settled the question of the Torah response. No more, no less. In other words, he created the framework which allowed the creation of what we now know as the Torah world or the Haredi world. And in the process, as I said, he built the Haredi world of Eretz Israel as we know today, which numerically is now outstripping every, obviously is the most important Jewish community in the world is in Israel. And the most dynamic uh, Haredi community in the world and Torah community in the world is here. And in many ways, he created the conditions that allowed that to flourish. So I would say, in a sense, this fragile, weak, chronically ill man, God of Israel, was perhaps the preeminent builder so far and that we're going to see. I don't know whether that's too much of a thing, but that's the framework. What would you say to that? I totally agree. Totally agree. The Chazanish did not speak a lot about Hashkofa. He didn't didn't give like drushes and public sermons about how he sees Hashkafa. But the, the few things that he did say and his hadrochas to the politicians were so fundamental that they lead the political life of from Jewry until this day. And I just want to give a tiny background because I don't think listeners and chutzlarts really understand what was going on here in Eretzal. And I can say that because I myself when I made Aliyah as a child more than 40 years ago, I really didn't believe it. I thought it was like a satma or propaganda, something like that. They were telling us that in the beginning of the state, they wanted to, uh, it was like a shasashmad, right? They wanted to take Jewish kids and really strip them from their... Uh, they being the, the secularist secular. factions or parties. Today who we know them. it's the left secularist because right. they, they were in power. They were in power. Begin didn't come into power until 1977, and he sure didn't have that uh, agenda. Mm-hmm. But you can talk to Ramanachem Cohen, who's on our board over here, who's closing on 90, and uh, he can tell you there, w- there was a systematic campaign to prevent Torah Chinuch. The kids came to Herzl, especially Sephardi, mm-hmm. like um, Oriental background, and... Uh, it was scary. It was very, very scary what was going to happen in the next few generations. And due to a lot of mysterious nefesh, the frumchuri prevailed. But that's something they that have to take in consideration before you talk about the Chazanish's influence. So in other words, the militancy that you see in some parts or large parts of the Haredi world still today had its roots in it was a counter reaction to a very militant secularism, which was prevalent at the time. That was the atmosphere in which the Chazanish was operating and the forces against uh, which he had to fight at the time.
Okay, I think more on that in part two of this. And this is a good opportunity, I think, to leave behind definitions and to jump straight into the beginning, chronological beginning of the Chazanish's life. Because the Chazanish was born in, as we said before, 1878 in Kosovo. For those who are familiar with Balkan geography, that's not the state of Kosovo created out of Yugoslavia. It is a town or village or one of these things near Brisk, now in Western Belarus, near the Polish border. And the Chazanish's parents were, I believe, Rosh Mario Yosef and Rasha Leah Karelitz. And she was a daughter of Roshal Katznanabog and a great Talmud Chacham. So Rabbi Ephraim, what do we know of the Chazanish's family? We know he had exceptional brothers-in-law, right? right. Well, tell me about some of the others. So first of all, we'll talk about his brothers. Mm -hmm. The most famous brother was his oldest brother. His name was Rabbi Meir Karelitz. Mm -hmm. He was very, very close to Rabbi Chaim Oizer. And it's actually Rabbi Moses' right-hand man in doing many, many uh, activities. For so, so, sorry to interrupt, but I wasn't aware of that. So that would explain the crucial connection because the Chazin Ish, ultimately it was Rabbi Moses who propelled him right. to leadership. I, I don't know if the connection came because of Rabbi Meir It's Maybe Rabbi Moses knew the Chazin Ish even without Rabbi Meir Okay. But the fact was that Rabbi Meir was a right-hand man of Rabbi Moses. And he held a, many, many official positions. Part of them, member of Moetzes Dolatayra, Vadi Yeshivas, probably Chinuch probably many, many things. Although regarding Chinuch I'm not 100% sure about that, but Vadi Yeshivas for sure. Vadi Yeshivas being the body that represented the pre-war or the interwar Yeshivas across Lithuania and Poland. And it continued on after the war, and it's still in existence. Here in, here in Israel, yeah. right. Vada Yeshivas still It's exists. a different function. At that time, it was more like a monetary mm -hmm. function, like fundraising and distributing funds to different Yeshivas in Eastern Europe. And today, it's more like a go-between between the Yeshivas and the army. Right. So it continues as kind of an attenuated form. There's an old joke in Yushalayim that in Yushalayim, they never closed down a Moisad. Yeah. Right. It's, it's not using it for this. You use it for something else. <laughs> <laughs> Things ever uh, continue on forever. So the Rameh Karelitz, was he the oldest? Uh, I think son? he was the oldest, right. He had another brother. His name was Rab Itzela. He was the Roshiva Yeshiva Ketana in Kosovo, I think. And uh, Rab Menachem Cohen, who I mentioned before, whose father was like a Ben Bais by the Chazanish, he learned in that Yeshiva Ketana of Rab Itzela. He even told me a few stories about how he used to take walks with Rab because he wasn't a healthy person. And he used to be Malava, him taking walks with him, talking about all different things. Those are the two brothers that we know. There might have been other brothers, but the more famous family members were the brothers-in-law, married to the sisters of the Chazanish, and some of them were actually became engaged to the Chazanish sisters because of the Chazanish. Chazanish found out about these Talmud Chachomim. Mm -hmm. The most famous story is about the stipler, that the stipler was learning in Novarak at the time, and he wrote a Chiddush in a Torah journal, either Knesset Yisrael or Yagdil Torah, I don't remember the exact name, and the Chazanish read that, uh, that Shtikl Torah and decided that was a good Shidduch for his sister. The Chazanish had this unique ability to identify the level of Yerushalayim by looking into the Chiddush that a person wrote. That seems weird to us, you know, like you see someone's Chiddush you think, okay, what does that prove? It proves that he's... Uh, it's either good or it's not good. <laughs> exactly. So it's not that the Chazanish had, and he didn't have many swarm in his house, but he had a swarm shrank in his house. 
And they say that he used to put the svarim in order from top to bottom, like higher shelf, lower shelves, according to the Yerushalayim of the Mechaber. <laughs> so he read a shtickel of the stipler, and he decided that was a good shidduch. And uh, it's a famous story by now that the stipler fell asleep at the first date because he refused to sit down on the, the cushioned the sh- right, the cushioned uh, chairs of the. Uh, but if I remember correctly, I think there was also a general impression that the Chazanish's sister had that. The stipler came from a Hasid Shahom. Hornestipel. Hornestipel. It's true, that comes from Chernobyl. Chernobyl. So the Hornestipel, for those who know Sanhedrin, Yerushalayim, the Hornestipel. That's why there was a connection between Professor Tversky and the stipler. We know that. We know there are letters between the stipler and Professor Tversky. Avrom Yeshua Heschel Tversky, who was Nifter, I think two years ago. There was a big connection between them, and they corresponded, and uh, the connection with Reb Chaim. So the connection comes from there, because the stipler was a chassid of his ancestors. Right. And just going totally off the subject, but Reb Chaim Kenyatsky was the symbol of the, the literature. literature, and, literature. And, yet, yeah. and yet his he got his, I think he wore his father's uh, strimal. So they had this, uh, the, the background. But anyway, so when the shidduch took off, or when the shidduch was suggested, the general impression that the Chazanisha sister got was that she was used to Bakram, who looked, you know, she was from Vilna, which in Lithuanian terms was a major town, major city, and so they looked more like groomed. And then this, uh, you know, wild-looking Chassid Shabacha would come from Novadak. Novadak was not exactly the place going to teach you to dress well. And in general, she just couldn't see it uh, happening. So it was just quite interesting to think of when one thinks of the Heilikites of the Chazanisha's family. And it was all true. And yet they were urban dwellers and they had probably certain expectations that right. were stood in their way. So that's one of them. The stipler was one of them. Another brother-in-law was Rav uh, Shmuel Greenman. He actually came to the United States for a certain kufa. He was a manile, I think, in Teferis Yushalayim, where Rabbi Moshe Feinstein was with Rosh Shiva. And he actually was in charge of putting out the Ksavim of the Chazanish from the beginning. Mm-hmm. And his children became like the first major Talmidim, or you can call them the children of the Chazanish, because the Chazanish, as we know, did not have children. And they actually grew up by him. I had a schus a few months ago of um, visiting one of those children by the name of Mayor Greenman, who's one of the big tzaddikim today, and uh, also in his 90s. And he actually grew up in the Chazanish's home. So that was another brother-in-law. There was a brother-in-law who took over the Rabbonus of Kosovo. His name was Rab Abba Sviatitsky. Mm-hmm. He had a son, uh, Rab Chaim Sviatitsky, who is also, I think, a Rosh Hashiva in Tefei Sushalayim, where Rab Moshe Feinstein was. And let me think if there's any other brothers-in-law. There's one more. It's confusing because it's Reb Nisim Karelitz's father. Now, Reb Nisim Karelitz's father was not a Karelitz. Hold on, Nisim Karelitz, the, the great Paisik. The great Paisik of Nebrak, who was nifted a few years ago. So he was also a nephew to the Chazanish, but not through his father, even though his name was Karelitz, it's through his mother, meaning his mother was a Karelitz. So hold on, his name Karelitz was named after his mother, or he was... During the war period, I think the name was Tsibolnik, I think. I'm almost sure that was the name. And his father's name was Abnachemeyer. I have no idea. So he's... Right. So he adopted, I think for war reasons, like army reasons, he adopted the name of his wife, Karelitz. So he was really a nephew of of the Chazinish, but from his mother. Exactly. Right. He 
you get some idea of who his family was. And there was this was kind of a hot house. There was a rabbinic dynasty, and there was gadlus there. But I think it's very one of the very important things to note about the Chazon Ish is that he had this highly unusual path to greatness, which was crucially he missed out one formative experience that seems very difficult to understand. He did not, besides for a few days, he did not go to yeshiva. Right. right. So we were talking. I think this has to do with something uh, very, very uh, fundamental in understanding the chiddush of the Chazanish. And we were talking about the fact that Chazanish was a builder. So we have to take in consideration that the Chazanish, by nature, did not have the qualities of a leader. Because we would think that a leader would be someone who's charismatic, someone who's willing to go out there and voice his opinion. The Chazanish suffered from stage fright from an early age, and he never really overcame that stage fright. They say the only time that he ever spoke in public, I think, was Hanukkah's Evan Pina or Hanukkah's Abayis of the Novadaki Yeshiva in Bnei Brak. And the only thing he did was he, he just read off a Maimar Chazal. That was his drusha. And he never spoke in public. And he was probably shy. And not only that, he once testified about himself that even if he knows that he has to be angry at someone, it's hard for him to do it. So he would ask someone else to do it for him. To rebuke the person. Right. He just couldn't. He just, he didn't have that in him. His natural qualities did not involve those, what we would call leadership qualities, which only adds to the big chiddush of the fact that the Chazanish was the most influential figure in Haredi Jewry until this day. Mm. It's interesting, though, because you can detect from the fact that he was self-made. I mean, he learned with his father and there were major Tamadichamim that he was close to. And so obviously, it's not someone just developing on his own in some remote village. That was not the case. But you can detect from the fact that he trod this lonely path, there was, it gave him an independence that allowed him to take his own path, as we're about to see, in halacha, in the fact that he didn't see the need for what was then a major component of the yeshiva curriculum, which was the Musa, uh, which had come from Yisrael Salanta. He didn't see a need for Limitah Musa in, the, in their organized sense. I don't think you needed that. Regarding the Musa, we have to take into consideration that I think it was Fakert. It was the opposite way around. The introduction of Musa into yeshivas was a chiddush in itself. Right. You wouldn't need to be someone special like the Chazunish to be against Musser. Yes, but allow me to say that I think that he himself developed an approach which, or refined, let's say he refined the approach of the role of, uh, he writes about the role of Halacha in developing Yerushalayim, meaning right. that Musser is there to develop Yerushalayim. So obviously he, he was, I think, following in the path of the Vilna Goyen and that, but he very much codified that. And it could almost represent what you say, like a counter-revolution. He strongly felt, and he said this, and he, he really re- relayed this to his Talmudim, that the Digduka Halacha was something that would create a perfect human being, even though it's not true to say that the Chazanish was anti musr I mean, I'm sure he held of learning Musas for him, and he once said this, I think, in a letter, that he had a good Kesher with the main powers of the, of the Musa movement, but he didn't like where it was going. Mm-hmm. What I managed to gather from my Rebbeim is that the fact that the Muslim movement, at least at some part, was causing like depression in the Bahrim, mm-hmm. I think that's what bothered him. I think that was a particular critique of Nevada. Nevada, correct. Yeah. I just want to point out, I was very close to a big tzaddik in Yerushalayim called Ablaib Minzberg. He was the head of the Masmidim uh, 
group in Yerushalayim. Old style Yerushalmis, right. Litvish Yerushalmis. So he pointed out something very interesting to me. He said, you know, when you go to a, a mashgiach in a yeshiva, and he talks about bitl Torah, right? So what is the first thing that he's going to mention to you in order to be mechazik you against bitl Torah? So bring you the chazal that whoever's mevatl Torah ma'achil noisa gachalei resomim. You feed him. Anyone who doesn't learn Torah, you feed him fiery coals. Fiery coals. Ouch. And and they'll talk about the kenim and all that. So he says that number one, I went through the entire kovitzikus chazonish, which are all letters mechazik bachrim. That's right. the majority of right. the izu chazonish. And I didn't find one time that mentions Gehenim. Interesting point. Interesting. Interesting point. And number two, when he talks about Bittl Torah, which is the place where you should have mentioned it, or at least Gachle Yerushalmim, so he doesn't mention that at all. I mean, an entire thing, there's not one fiery coal. <laughs> <laughs> and when he's talking about Bittl Torah, the only thing he's telling the Bachram is, you have no musag, what a tanug is, to learn Torah, Beretzifus, for two hours. And you learn for three hours, then the Oine Gruchni is even greater than that. When you learn for four hours, it's even great. He's just telling you how gishmak it is to learn Torah Beretzifus. Yeah. So you see that in the I was just mentioning before. He, he didn't want to go on that path. Right. Very of, conscious. He was an early mover in the positive reinforcement. The, the right. sense, well, in a serious way, the sense that a generation, that's just not the way to go. It's an interesting forerunner of what is certainly the totally dominant approach today. I think if we're looking at those years, I think it's possible to classify or to categorize those decades of essentially learning on his own and teaching small numbers of people, mainly children, Really? He was megadal children to be Talmud Chachamim. I think his main Talmudim were people who grew up by him like children. And it didn't have to be Dafke, his nephews. And nephews came later on in life. Right. In the beginning, it was different people. And we, we know names of people. You know, Rav Menachem Cohen told me that his father, Rav Moshe Cohen Levitsky, which is mentioned in Perador many times, he was one of those children who was uh, brought up by the Chazonish. And... Uh, you know other names. I don't know if you all allow me to mention these names here, but the famous Yiddish... Okay, it's, not, uh, it's not adverts. Right. The famous Yiddish uh, writer Chaim Grade. He, in the end, became secular. Right. But he, at the beginning, he grew up by the Chazonish. Right. I actually saw something about Chaim Grade. I think that it's not a name that is uh, beyond, you know, consumers of the Yiddish language version of the forward. <laughs> I don't think people know about this, but he was on the the same level, Shalom Aleichem, and... He, he felt very Chaim highly Grade. of the Chazonish. Mm-hmm. I mean, he writes very, very nice things about the Chazonish. That was the story. I don't know if you know the background of that story. Was He was growing up in like a Novartic-style place, and he was affected by that. And the Chazanish was trying to save him from it. And he keeps on talking about it. He talks about, I think, it doesn't call him Avram Mishaya. Avram Kosova. That's what he calls him. That's right. Avram I saw Mishaya that. Kosova. Yeah. Right. Yeah. I mean, the Chazanish makes what we'd call a cameo, an appearance right. in a piece of literature in that way. When I'm looking at those years, I'm thinking there's one story that stands out for me. It's quite well known, and I was so happy to see that it's actually got some basis, involving Rav Henkin. Rav Henkin was, the, uh, before Moshe Feinstein came to America, was the great Paisuk, Rav Yosef Elio Henkin. Great Paisuk, but obviously come from Lithuania before the war. He was and, in Paisuk in Russia before he came to Israel. Okay. Then he came to America, right? 
the story goes that Rav Henkin came to wherever the Chazanish was, living at that particular time. Kvaidan. Kvaidan was, was, who, was married so. in his. So he came there and Rav Henkin met, saw the Chazanish. Now the Chazanish, the, even 50 years after his marriage, he was still the mayor of Bnei Brak, Yitzchak uh, Gestenkon, offered, he saw what rags the Chazanish was in. He says he offered to, you know, make him a proper rabbinic garb. And, and the Chazanish said, uh, no, 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 I'm not going to. He said, well, at least something for Shabbos. He says, I've worn the same Beged ever since I got married. Right. So the Chazanish did not, let's say, cut a prepossessing figure with a battered hat and old clothes. And Rav Henkin mistook him just, uh, you know, for some a tramp or whatever he did, you know, a, a poor Jew sitting at the back of shul. And Rav Henkin says, sees that he's staring into space. He's not sitting there with a sefer. And he says to the Chazanish, um, who are you? He says, I'm the son of the Rav, the cost of the Rav. He says, so what do you do? He says, I own a shop. Well, it was actually true because he did own a shop, right? His wife ran the shop. He says, so when does a Jew get time to learn? So Chazanish said, when I have time. And it was absolutely true. It was absolutely true. When the Chazanish had time, he learned all the time. And for me, that's an incredible story, both his testament to his uh, Midas and also to something else I think is very important. The absence of a need to sell himself, I was actually thinking about this. Why does a person, in such a circumstance, person feels a need to correct the misapprehension? He's a great person thinking that he's just a layabout. Most people would feel the need to correct the false impression, and he didn't, because the Chazunish, clearly, I always think it's, if a person's internal world and self-worth is big enough, then what the world thinks about them. In this particular case, the Chazanish had a reason to stay hidden, and that was it. His internal world, his internal self-worth was big enough for that. I don't know if I ever told you this, but uh, my father used to invite Professor Tversky. My father was Manal in, in Shalavim, in, in, in the yeshiva, and he used to invite to the American Bochrim, yeah. every Hoshana Rabbah, he used to invite Professor Tversky to speak before them. One day he came home after one of these uh, sessions, and he says, Gewaldige Chiddush in the name of Professor Tversky, and it has to do, Mamish, exactly to, to this, this Nakuda. And he says, I want to bring you a Raya Gemura, that there's no stira between Anova and a healthy self-esteem. Yeah. He says, what's my Raya Gemura? He says, the Chofetz Chaim was the biggest Anov that we we knew in the latest generations, right? If he didn't have a healthy self-esteem, how can he write a Mishnah Brewer? How can he decide in Machlokesim between between Paiskin, <laughs> right? So this is the Nakuda you're bringing out. The, the, the Chazanish had a very healthy self-esteem. I mean, it, and you're right. It, and he said, "Total Anova." That was right, it. He, as far as he was concerned. That was it. He was a plain Jew, and that was it. There was no, nothing rabbinic about him. Rabbi Ephraim, I think just to understand what was developing in those years, I think you have to resort to a few stories. And what I mean is often we throw around stories. You know, the, the, this God was great and he did this. And stories in a way can be imprecise. But I think the Chazanish was so extraordinary, the only way we're going to quantify and define who he is is through examining some of the extraordinary things that were said about him. And one of the things that was Masa Ish, which was one of these collections of, it's not exactly a biography, collections of stories and sayings uh, about Chazanish. It quotes the Ramadcha Shulman. Ramadcha Shulman was the Roshiva Slabodka in Bnei Brak, who was the Chavrusa of the Chazanish. And he says the following thing happened to him. He said, once the Chazanish was sitting there and they were learning. And suddenly the Chazanish grabbed a fruit and 
he bit into it, whatever, an apple, without a bracha. That's an incredible thing to see, right? The chazan, what happened to the chazan bracha? It clearly didn't forget. And he ate it, and he explained afterwards that he'd pushed himself so far to the edge of exhaustion, to the edge of his capacities, a physical strength, that he suddenly felt a tremendous weakness. And he knew that if that second he didn't take any nourishment and food into his body, he would possibly end his life, right? It was actually a second, it was a danger to his health. And so he said, there was literally not a fragment of a second that I could spare anymore. I couldn't make a bracha, which is an incredible. I heard this story more than 30 years ago from Abdan Segal, yep. who once came to, to the Hebron Yeshiva and an Elul, and he was giving a schmooze, and he, he brought out a different akut over there. He said that if the Chazanish knew that the way he says a bracha, that would have endangered him. Oh, okay. <laughs> the point being that a bracha that has frost, to... You say, okay, we're over it. But the Chazanish, when he said, boy, pray, he was like, wow, because Bochu took a fruit out of a tree. Well, that's... <laughs> Rebbe it's one of these stories that if we wouldn't have a clear and authentic source from someone who, who lived recently, right, it sounds too incredible to be true because what level of existence are you on that it's a matter of seconds that you're about to, about to do serious damage to your health. You know, Rebbe Mayor Tzvi Bergman was now in America, right, in the Adir Torah yeah. event. Right, so one of the, the stories that he tells over is that he slept in the Chazanish when he, when he was a child. He, he slept in the Chazanish's house, yeah. and he once found the Chazanish on the floor, mm-hmm. right? And he asked him, like, what happened? So he says, I usually calculate the time and the strength that it takes me to walk to the bed and lay down on the bed, and I don't stop learning until that second, and I miscalculated, and I fell before I reached the bed. So he was learning, like, until the close koiches, and he just collapsed on the spot. I think in those years, this is obviously totally out of order, but, but it's important to mention the Chazanish's marriage. He, was, he got married at 27 years old in 1905, and this was six years before the first volume of the, of the Chazanish appeared. He got married to uh, his, his rebbe from Basia, um, from Kvaidan, as, as you said, uh, which is in Lithuania. It's actually called something else today. I just managed to find that. And what's exceptional about this, he knew basically going in that he wouldn't have any children. And he knew also that he'd been essentially, I think, tricked into marrying a far older woman. And I think it was for for the reason not to embarrass her, not to shame her, that he didn't want to break off the engagement, which had been, uh, you know, come back through false pretenses in that way, which I personally find, I think, in the, the some of the biographies of the Chazonish has been, is omitted or is even falsified, right, for reasons of protecting whatever dignity. But in a certain sense, to my mind, this is a story of godless that should be told because... Uh, this has a continuation which only exaggerates the godless even greater. And this I heard from eyewitness people who were there, children who grew up by him, that the Chazanish was aware that because she didn't have children, she was depressed for many years. And he was always trying to find ways to cheer her up. And he used to ask the kids to come and ask her for food and all that. She'd prepare food for them or that she, she would have this sense of giving over to a child giving her like a substitute uh, feeling of raising a child. So not only did he agree to go ahead with the marriage, but it was a lifelong mission to cheer her spirits. Mm -hmm. And it was in that marriage 
just a few years later that he first started to produce this forum, the Chazin Ish, Ish being Avram Yishaya, Yishaya was his name, and, and it would just appear, for years it just appeared as a Ish, that was his name, it was, it was anonymous. And I think what was radical about this forum is that I just remember when I'm reading with learning Masech Shabbos and then there's there's heavy clashes, constant clashes between the Rubik Vega and the Chazinish. I just remember this is like a, a feature of the Masechta. And the Chazinish is, you're reading it and you're thinking, it's head scratching. What an amazing Svara. But where did he get it from? Right? It's original and sometimes radical. And the Chazinish later, as we're going to see in the second episode, we're going to see that the Chazinish was on those narrow physically weak shoulders. He had enormously wide and broad halachic shoulders, which are fascinating to see. But I just want to focus um, just a minute on something interesting about another aspect of his writing, which was, as you said, he didn't go in, in for Musa, but his work of uh, Emuna Ubitochen, obviously on Emuna Ubitochen, is a work that I have found showed a beautiful, poetic, an extremely poetic and lyrical command of Lashon HaKodesh, which led some of his uh, biographers to speculate. Academic academic biographers to say, well, this was a man who had leanings and tendencies towards Haskalah because he dared to have a beautiful command of Hebrew of of Lashon HaKodesh. And the opening words of that work, worth reading about, we've not got time to go into them now, but he he talks about a person as a sensitive soul, as a time of tranquility, then his eye is opened by the sight of the towering heavens, the earth plunging to the depths. He said the world appears to him like a closed riddle, and he feels like fainting. Others solve this riddle. And he's talking about that the world itself can scream out the question, who created me? I mean, this words in English you give some idea of how poetic he is in describing how his deafness in using, you know, Lashna Kodesh. And to me, when I read this, I've said, read this again and again, you get some hint of the Chazanish's kind of poetic soul. He was a lofty, soaring soul that you can see that. Perhaps you wouldn't see that from his halachic works, the Chazin Ish, but this Amunah Betochen. And for me, there's also a second point, which is that he sees that the Torah is this wondrous spiritual force that has to come, as you see later in the work of Amunah Betochen, that has to be taken entirely on its own. That's what I see over here. I think the Nikuda that you're referring to is the fact, and, and this is where he criticizes Musar. He wants to bring out the point that Musa, without knowing the halacha, is not going to get you anywhere. And he brings this fascinating scenario of a Malamed who comes to town and he's competing with the existing Malamed, right? And the townspeople are being roid of him that he's masigvul, that he's ruining the parnasa mm-hmm. of the previous Malamed, right? And they're going to go all out in war in order to save the previous Malamed. And the Chazanish says they don't know the halacha that regarding... Uh, there is no such thing as Hasogas Gvul. So he says, in one second, the whole pretense of being roidif, the second Malamid, falls away. But a person who doesn't know that, Allah doesn't know that. So he thinks that he's being a very ethical person in being roidif, the second Malamid, and he doesn't realize that it's against Allah. I think one of the most fascinating descriptions of the Chazanish regarding his halacha, his amkus, and his tzidkus is found in a fascinating letter which is published in the Chuvas of the Sudeesh. Just for people who don't know who the Sudeesh is, so Ghazali just give us like a, uh, 
a rundown like Rabbi Chiliaka Weinberg. I think he was one of the amazing minds and products of Slavodka who moved to uh, Germany and became the head of the Bismarck Rabban in Berlin and identified later very much with the, the Mahalach HaRashim Shemfal Hirsch. But he was a Godel Batayra and also a academic scholar who had a doctorate, I think, in Semitic languages, I think. The situation, anyone who knows his writings, is, is that he's very critical of anything that moves. I mean, he's not going to save his criticism if he thinks that something is wrong. And when it comes to the Chazanish, it's fascinating how he just goes overboard when talking about the Chazanish. So I'll just read the lines, and Rabbi Dali, if you can help us in translating in your beautiful Oxford English. My simultaneous <laughs> translation services. Right. So, so we'll start off. He's responding to a letter that he received. Mm-hmm. So he's, he writes like this. Mashashoal al dvar gadlusoy shel hagoyin achosid bal chazonish zal. So first of all, you realize over here how he coins, he calls him hagoyin hachosid bal chazonish zal. Right, he, he's, the chosid, the, the right, pious, the, the pious, pious goyin. So he starts defining him. He says, higayon bari v'tzalul. A clear... You know, a logical and clear mind or intellect, rather. Which will go deep down into the depths of the sugya, but that won't take away from the fact that it will be still categorized as pshat in the Mm. sugya. It won't be like a uh, pilpul. Some addition which is bolted on from the outside. He will not say something. So some brilliant, brilliant svara, brilliant approach, which is not kind of an organic part, organic meaning of the words themselves. Vayiker, now he talks about him himself. Vayiker, Yoshav Esrois Bashonim. He sat for tens of years or decades. Boded Bechedro. Alone in his room. He went through the entire Shas, Poiskim, and Mephoroshim until each of the Halochas, the was absolutely crystal clear to him. And in, his, in his great piety, he didn't dispute and didn't challenge the Rishonim, which is an interesting thing in the sense the implication being that it would have been possible for him to, or in, implicit in his words yeah. is that he was Chaylik on the Achronim very many times. That we know. Right. Traditionally, he did not defer to even Achronim who'd come long before him. Hey, Yosef, I personally learned a sugya, a very complex sugya in Chayshim Mishpat called Asmachta, yeah. I think. And I remember learning, I was so shocked when I learned it the first time, that uh, the Bess Yosef brings a certain akuda and he brings eight rayas, why he's right. And the Chazanish doesn't even mention that he's talking about the Bess Yosef. He just goes and knocks down all eight rayas. And the Bess Yosef is basically the borderline with the Rishonim. He right, was the author right, of the Shechnach, right? Right. right. So he said, but the Rishonim, he doesn't touch. And we know that. The Chazanish says, uh, he, he used the lotion of, HaRishonim asher ruach ha-kodesh midrasham. That's the lotion of the Chazanish. Right? That's why he didn't want to you don't want to start up with the Rishonim. So he said the divine inspiration was was in the base medish of the Rishonim. So he, he didn't he wasn't prepared to tackle them. Fascinating. So just end off a one line. I'm being Mikata here because you're pressuring me to get to finish this. So I'll just uh, I'll just end off and he says like this. Bevadai Shuhua Yagodl Hador Bimiktsoya Ha Locha 
וחסידותו הוסיפו לזוהר הקדושה, he was the god of the Torah and Aloha, and his piousness or piety, right, only added to his uh, aura of holiness. לא היה כמויסוי לוי בדורנו ולוי בדורס הקודמים מזמן הגרו ואילך. That's unbelievable. He That's says unbelievable. there was no one like him. Uh, you have to go back to the Vilna Gaon, you know, 200 years. Just try to think who lived from the times of the Vilna Gaon until today. That's incredible. And, and, That's, and an incre- that That's an incredible and thing. And this, this is Sudeish saying this. Sudeish yeah. was a very critical person. He wasn't a person who would ex- exaggerate for nothing. Fascinating. And we're marching forward to the early 1930s, which is from 1919 to 1933. The Chazanish lived in Vilna. And it was in those years in which we find the twilight years in which the Rechaim Oyzegrodzinski, who is the uncrowned or uncontested but unofficial leader of the yeshiva world as it was then pre-war, he starts involving in significant you know, leadership decisions. Behind the scenes. Behind the scenes. And he said he would attempt to get him to speak at gatherings of Rabbonim. But he said he didn't decide major decisions in common affairs without first showing and asking, consulting the Chazanish, which is an incredible thing to anyone who knows the stature and the power of Rechaim Moise And in those years, it's a very, very interesting thing because we know that in 1931, he decides that he wants to move to Eretz Yisrael. He wants to move uh, to Palestine as, as it was then. And um, he has the different explanations why that happened. One of them is a dream in, what, in which he saw a horse with bells. And he saw in it some vision in which it's calling on him to come to Eretz Yisrael and to take over, to move into some leadership role in this, what was called then the Yishuv. According to that, it's a very interesting thing. It was a very, very clear decision. He himself saw that, it, that this was the time to sort of shed his mantle of you know, the stage of being unknown and to actually go and work in public affairs to actually build the future of the Torah in Eretz Yisrael. In the Torah world, there's the telegram which was sent by Ruchaim Oizah, in which he literally uh, said, now is the time he, he wrote to those who were receiving uh, the Chazanish in Eretz Yisrael, sort of Moshe Bloy, the head of Agudon, Moshe Porosh, the head of Agudon Yisrael. And he used the words, Ari, quoted from a Gemara, Ari Olo Mibovel, the lion has arisen from Babylonia. And indeed, and if you look back, this weak, a physically weak, self-effacing man, a godel who spent 55 years in the shadows, was about to turn into a lion, the leader of the post-war Torah world. <laughs> 